Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier and coming up on today's show... Blazing wildfires are destroying huge parts of Australia. How can countries prepare for the consequences of extreme weather? We take a look at the workings of TSMC, the Taiwanese company that makes a huge swathe of the world's semiconductors. And open innovation. What is it, and how can it be harnessed? Australia is burning. Catastrophic wildfires have been blazing since September. More than 20 people have died and thousands of homes have been destroyed. A study at the University of Sydney estimates that hundreds of millions of animals have perished. Australia is no stranger to bushfires, but this year's inferno is beyond anything they've seen before, after months of severe drought and record-breaking temperatures. Katrine Brahek is the Economist Environment Editor. Katrine, it's hard to comprehend the scale of what's happening. Just how big an area is affected? So as you said, Ken, the fires have been burning since September. Overall, we're looking at several millions of hectares that have burnt in that time. The numbers vary, but I think we're looking at between five and six currently. Of course, the fire season isn't over yet. How large is that relative to the other great infernos like at the Amazon? One thing actually to compare it to initially is other fires in Australia, right? Because you're looking at similar ecosystems. So the last major fire event was in 2009. That was the Black Saturday event, which burnt something in the region of 450,000 hectares. So you're looking at an order of magnitude bigger than the last biggest event in Australia. The fires in Brazil and in California last year, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of hectares as well, as opposed to the millions that we're looking at in Australia today. Now, why is it so much worse this year than in previous years? The big question on many people's minds is that it is indeed climate change. Fire is an incredibly complex event, as you can imagine. There are natural phenomenons and Australia, or certainly large parts of Australia, burn naturally every year. We're looking at hot and dry ecosystems where fire is just a normal part of the ecosystem. That said, climate change is making areas like Australia and California and the Mediterranean that have historically been hot and dry, it's making them hotter and drier. The most recent numbers show that 2019 broke all records in terms of hottest temperatures and least amount of rain in Australia. And that obviously produces a huge amount of fuel for wildfires to go through. Katrine, researchers are always using models to forecast extreme weather events. Was this predictable? It was predictable. And in fact, in April last year, retired fire chiefs were already warning that a highly unusual fire season was setting up. Not only that, climate models 
do predict in general that these hot and dry regions are going to be subject to greater, more intense, longer fire seasons in future and that extreme fire events are going to occur more frequently. So I think what we're looking at here is an incredibly unusual event historically and we may not see something like this again in the near future, but that's something that's part of a wider global trend towards more intense, longer fire seasons. And that's not just in Australia. So where do you foresee these new extreme fire events taking place? So to some extent, we're already seeing this, right? California and the Mediterranean region are already seeing increased fire regimes. Australia is already seeing increased fire regimes. These are the parts of the world that are traditionally have fire as part of their ecosystem. There's another trend that's also happening, which is ecosystems that don't normally burn are being damaged both by climate change and by deforestation in the Amazon, for instance. And that is creating new fire risks that aren't part of the natural ecosystem. That's the situation in Brazil. And it's probably worth mentioning also the incredibly unusual fires that tore through Siberia last year, which is not a region we're used to seeing burn. So if these fires are now part of the new normal, what can countries do to cope? So first of all, this trend needs to be at the top of politicians' minds. Past trends cannot be used to inform future planning. The seasons will become longer. Recurrence between extreme events will become shorter. That means that fire management needs to take that into account. The specifics of how you deal with that is going to depend entirely on the specific circumstances of each region. But one thing, for instance, is potentially to look at fire risk zones in the same way as you look at flood risk zones. There are going to be consequences for insurance policies. There are going to be consequences for where you build and how you build, building codes, building regulations, etc. A lot of this is starting to happen, but it needs to accelerate. So to what extent can this be prevented? Maybe we just simply can't have habitable life where we've normally put people before. Yeah, that's a live debate. And I think, first of all, it's not necessarily about preventing fires. As I said, in many places, fire is just part of the natural ecosystem. Whether or not people need to be moved out of certain high-risk areas is, as I say, a live debate. It's a political debate. I don't think we're anywhere near the end of it. To some extent, it's possible that people might need to just learn to live with fire risk in the same way as you live with flood risk, for instance, or you live, if you're in San Francisco, with the risk of a large earthquake. There's something different with fires. It's a lot more visceral and it's visually symbolic of these transformations that are happening around the world. And so I think the population is going to respond slightly differently. Well, it does seem like it's yet another thing we need to get used to. Katrine, thank you very much. To learn more about the issue, read Katrine's piece in the upcoming edition of The Economist. Now, many of you listen regularly to this podcast, and we're grateful that you do. But if you're not accessing our articles, either in print or online or through the app, you're only getting a small portion of The Economist's ideas and insight. But you can change this by subscribing now that it's the new year. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer to get 12 issues for $12 or £12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Reach into a purse or a pocket. Whether you pull out a phone or a debit card, it's likely that the small microchip in it will have come from the same place, Taiwan. The island of Taiwan is where 90% of the world's most advanced and made-to-order semiconductors are made, most of them by a single company, TSMC. And now with the opening of a massive new fabrication facility, or FAB, they look set to become even more influential. Hal Hodson is our Asia technology correspondent. Hal, how did this one company grow to become such a dominant force? Well, you need to get into a little bit of technical history to understand that. Uh, Back in, say, the 70s, Intel was the flavor of the day, the world's biggest chip company, and their chips were in, you know, all manner of desktop PCs. uh, And that was just the way the world worked. And then in 1987, this guy called Morris Chang, who used to work for Texas Instruments, saw a gap in the market for a company that would make chips, but only for other people. And so Intel was making chips according to how Intel wanted to make chips. They had their own roadmap. They knew what they were doing. They were like, we're going to make chips that do this, that, and the other. And they would listen to their customers. Their customers would say, oh, you know, in in five years, we'd quite like a chip that does this. And Intel would be like, maybe we'll do that for you, but only if you're a huge customer. TSMC, which stands for the Taiwanese Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, perhaps the most, you know, precisely named company that there is, was established with kind of almost the opposite goal in mind, which was that we will make what you need according to your specifications. And it was incredibly ahead of its time because, as it turned out, once the iPhone came out, that's what you needed to do to make a really good phone. You needed to build a chip that was really integrated with your device. Now, we should also specify for listeners what we mean by a semiconductor or a chip because some are memory and some are processors. Yes. So TSMC only makes logic or processing chips. And what these essentially are are a giant bundle of abacuses etched into silicon in nanometer precision that can do maths in real time. And frankly, when you're swiping around Instagram or you're, you know, you're talking on the phone, on your smartphone, that's all just a giant mathematical orchestra that's happening in the background on this chip. And what you see on your phone is just, you know, those pixels are being drawn in real time, but it's the chip that's doing all of that without you really seeing it. So tell us more about the fab that they're building. Right. So uh, their newest fab is called Fab 18. It's a $17 billion factory. And just by way of comparison, Tesla's new gigafactory to make their sort of fancy cars in Shanghai is only a $2 billion factory. Okay, so how do you spend $17 billion on a single factory? Yes. Um, I should be upfront. I don't know exactly everything that goes in there. It's extremely secretive. You cannot go in. When I went there, all I could do was walk around the outside of it and get told to go away by security guards. But we have a reasonable idea of what's in there. Perhaps the most important and expensive component is a huge machine by a Dutch company called ASML. And what this machine does essentially is generate the light that is used to etch the design in tiny, 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 tiny designs on the silicon wafer itself. So we should also specify one of the reasons why it might be so expensive is that you can't actually have any vibration in the factory. Not only do you have to clear the air so there's no particles of of these microscopic specks of dust, but also the very 
factory itself needs to have anti-vibration technology built into it because the machines have to be so precise. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the the silicon on which they draw the circuit, they have to be able to make a single crystal of silicon. They call it a, an ingot when they're in the manufacturing process. And that ingot is the most precisely ordered object that humans are capable of making by like an order of magnitude. It's like imagine a diamond that was two meters high. That's what humans are capable of making with these silicon ingots that then get sliced into wafers and then you write the chips on them. And it's kind of a coincidence that humans are able to make these huge, huge crystals, they're not able to do it for anything else. It's a really, really, really difficult chemical problem. But we figured out how to do it with silicon, and it just happens to be what we need to run a global technology industry. So TSMC is doing pretty well, and it's a very capital-intensive business. Does it have any rivals, and how will it maintain its dominance? It essentially, at this point, has no rivals. The last competing contract manufacturer was a company called Global Foundries, and they gave up on trying to stay with the latest cutting-edge tech. They officially announced that they wouldn't be bothering trying to go there, I think, in 2017. And they were they were an American company, even though they have investors from Saudi Arabia, but they are based in America. So at this point, TSMC almost has no rivals. Samsung is trying to spin up its equivalent foundry business making chips. The difficulty with Samsung is that it also designs chips for phones in the mo- one of the most competitive phones in the market. So if you're Apple, are you going to be cool with sending your most treasured, like l- cutting edge intellectual property to essentially a competitor who just says, we promise we'll just make these chips for you. We totally won't look at how they work. It's almost an impossible promise for them to make. Okay. But I wonder, as the global technology industry itself is fracturing into these little islands of insular organizations with a trade war going on or something that looks a little bit like that, certainly in terms of technology, what's the future of this fab? The future of this fab is very interesting. I think it's going to keep me in a job for quite some time. Uh, So most of our listeners will not have ever heard of TSMC. They probably won't know what that is. I totally disagree. I think you treat our listeners as too weak. Well, I would be very curious to know, you know, how many of our listeners have heard of TSMC and how many haven't. So of the top 20 most valuable companies by market capitalization, public companies on the planet, TSMC is the only one that doesn't have a direct relationship with consumers. So, you know, you've got your Disney's and your Apple's and your Google's and your Facebook's. And and there's just this factory. They just make stuff. They don't sell anything to consumers. They're just a B2B company and they're the only one in the top 20 that, that is like this. But you asked about sort of what the trade war means for this company. And it's not clear what will happen. Currently, there's this sort of very uh, poor equilibrium balance, but there is a balance. So both Huawei, which is China's most important tech company, and Apple, which is arguably one of America's most important tech companies, are TSMC's number one and two customers. They both make up more than 10% of TSMC's revenue. The reason that this matters is that currently TSMC is kind of held in tension between Chinese and American needs. But America really would like TSMC to stop helping China build more and more advanced technologies, especially things like 5G chips, which are all fabbed in TSMC, but, you know, and designed by Huawei's high silicon division. Right now, there's a tension. And the thing that I'm watching, the thing that, you know, listeners should be paying attention to is if that tension sort of gets tugged one way or another and things fall out of balance, then TSMC is a strategic resource. There's nowhere else on the planet that can do what they do. Hal Hudson, thank you very much. Recently on Babbage, I interviewed the designer and technologist John Maida about the importance of understanding machines. And while he was with us, he signed a copy of his new book, How to Speak Machine, 
the laws of design for a computation age. For the chance to win the book, we asked listeners, what is the one thing in society that should be redesigned? We received scores of great answers. Many of you suggested that we redesign democracy and voting. Another popular response was that we revamp the five-day work week, presumably to work less, not more. But our favorite and the winner comes from Tracy and Sydney, who said we should redesign sound notifications. Quote, this includes notifications in devices, public transport systems, construction vehicles, etc., that are mostly intrusive, stress-invoking, unsubtle, and often unnecessary. End quote. And we agree. We loved your answer, and we're going to send you a copy of the book. And to everyone who contributed, thank you very much. We loved reading your thoughtful, witty, and wonderful replies. In a world of discord and technological rivalry, there is one thing we can all agree on. Innovation is good. So surely open innovation should be even better. The idea has been around since the early 2000s. But what is it? And how can it be harnessed? Well, I spoke to the person who first coined the term to find out, Henry Tresbrough from UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. Open innovation is this idea that you don't have to do everything yourself on the journey from the laboratory to the market. And in many cases, you would get further faster with less risk if you collaborated for some part of that journey. And why is that important? What did innovation look like before? So for a long time, uh, innovation was something that was done inside the four walls of a company. In the second half of the 20th century, particularly in the aftermath of World War II, a number of companies in Europe and North America built these fabulous industrial research laboratory systems that uh, engineered wonderful inventions and took them to the marketplace in a very vertically integrated way. But in the last 20 years of the century, that started to erode, and today it's become much more open. Okay, so for in this abundance of open innovation, why don't we have so much productivity that we can actually enjoy the benefits of it? This is where I begin my book with what I think of as this paradox. Technology is accelerating at a faster rate, but economic productivity is actually slowing down and wages are stagnating. This doesn't seem like an era of abundance if you think about those things. So what is your prescription? What do we do about this? To get results from innovation, it's not enough to think about the generation of these new ideas. We also have to think about their dissemination into the wider society and their absorption. So how do we boost the absorption and dissemination of these ideas? We have to create and strengthen our innovation infrastructure to do that. And this has both hard and soft elements to it. Uh, some of the hard elements might be some of the underlying technologies for communications, or it could be bridges and roads and electrical grids. And then there's the softer side, which are things like training, being able to understand how to master new skills. Uh, and we need both the hard and the soft to get the real results from innovation. Now, what's a great example of one that we should all laud? Well, let's see. Uh, it's an older example, but when the Exxon Valdez sank in the Prince Edward Sound off the coast of Alaska, it was a terrible environmental disaster. And a lot of oil went to the seabed 
under conditions of a lot of pressure and very cold temperatures. So the question was how to get the oil off of the seabed. The award-winning result came from somebody from the cement industry because in order to keep cement from setting, you keep turning the device in the back of the truck so that the cement keeps moving and the vibration keeps the cement from becoming fixed. So the idea was use vibration to get the oil to separate from the seabed. And once you got it separated, you can then suck it up using suction. And this actually worked. So far, this is a very cheery tale. Tell me about the misuses of open innovation. Open innovation came into the world around 2003. And by the time of the financial crisis, it was still pretty new, pretty untested and unproven. And in the financial crisis, a lot of organizations had to make some very difficult cuts. And I'm afraid more than a few of them used the rhetoric of open innovation to essentially camouflage some outsourcing of innovation and just deep budget cuts in innovation so that when markets did finally grow again, many of these companies lacked the internal capacity to innovate that they had before the financial crisis, all because of open innovation in quotes. Now, how does data play a role in this? Because if we're having an economy that's built more and more on data, you would think that open innovation practices should be the fuel to spark new products and services. When it comes to uh, accessibility of data, we have the GDPR regime here in Europe, which I think is really trying to protect the rights of individuals. And then at the other extreme, we have China, where basically the rights are the property of the state. And the individual's control over his or her data is quite limited. Uh, the U.S. is somewhere in between. And then within uh, the U.S. or Europe, you have some companies like Apple that have built business models where they say we don't want your data and we won't use your data versus companies like Google, which have really weaponized the value of your data and found great ways to turn that into value for them. Now, when I think about the geopolitics of technology, we're in the midst of a trade war, but there's also a technology cold war between America and China. And of course, America lauds itself as having an open society and an open innovation economy. China, not so clear. How do you see this playing out? China is doing something quite different from the former Soviet Union. They are actually using markets to allocate resources in different areas. At the same time, the Communist Party in China is still very much in control of the commanding heights of the Chinese economy. So this is a new beast that we're confronting, not just the U.S., but I would say uh, everybody that is trading with China. The good news is they are using markets, and so you can and often do have access through markets through the decisions of individual consumers. The bad news is there are strategic considerations relating to uh, new industries or in the case of the online sector, companies like Google don't have any access to China because of being excluded. So it's going to be a fascinating mix of both a planned economy from the Soviet era but also a very open market economy all together in the fastest-growing large market in the world. Okay. 
Henry, in front of me is the book that you've just written, Open Innovation Results, Going Beyond the Hype and Getting Down to Business by Oxford University Press. I need you to sign a copy to a lucky listener, and together we are going to come up with a suitable question for them to answer that entails both hemispheres of their brain, left and right, so they can answer something that is plausibly right, but also involves some creativity that they just can't Google the answer. So, Ken, I'm happy to sign this because if I sign it, you can't return it for a refund. Well, if you sign it to Dear eBay user, you might find that it'll have an incredible afterlife. Especially if I die in the meantime. Let's do this. In a world in which everything is open innovation, it's the new default setting, and the pendulum swings in another direction where companies feel the need to be a little bit closed. They can't use the term closed because it's a pretty bad brand. So what term would they use instead? So that's an excellent observation, Ken. And uh, Gary Hamill, a well-known management theorist, said to me that in his mind, the opposite of being open in open innovation wasn't being closed, but being arrogant and hubris, having all the answers yourself and you don't need any help from anybody else. So we'll see. I guess the question for the listeners will be, tell us what will we use instead of saying open innovation for the contrary of it, this sort of internal or quote unquote closed innovation, what would be a better branding term? In this dynamic dialectic process of innovation. Oh, that is so good. I see another book coming out of you. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Henry. Thank you very much. Send your answer and a short explanation to radio at economist.com. We'll pick our favorites and the winning entrant will win a signed copy. That's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, amid the open innovation of the Babbage team, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.